0: Welcome back to the Bibliotheques podcast, folks. Today, Cody and myself are going to recap and discuss Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, the film adaptation from 1998, starring Johnny Depp, Benicio del Toro, and directed by Terry Gilliam. Cody, how did you enjoy the movie? I made
1: an enormous mistake and watched this movie while pretty hungover. And so I just wanted to crawl out of my own skin the entire time. With that said, the movie did an excellent job, I thought, interpreting how bizarre the book is.
0: I I thought so as well. And we can get into kind of what we liked and didn't like. You know, for the most part, the movie, it's a. I mean, it stays really close to the book, like just in terms of the different scenes that they chose, they omitted very minor things. In my opinion, they added some like small things, a lot of just like stylistic choices, which I thought were all pretty well placed. But yeah, for the most part, I mean, the movie stuck real close to the book. And so in terms of doing like a full recap of the movie, I don't know that it makes a ton of sense to like talk about what happened, considering it's. Basically just the book, but we can go through it and talk about what we liked and didn't like in it, of course. Before we do that, I do want to just um clean up a few things from our last episode. So, first of all, I just want to apologize for some of the bumpy, let's say, audio from last recording. I just want to say CenturyLink is on my shit list. <laughs> and my Wi-Fi was so bad last week that like it was just an absolute Chore to record. So luckily, things are fixed. Hopefully, this episode comes through a little clearer. Just wanted to uh just throw out a quick apology for that. But a couple other things. So, Cody, I want to I wanted to get your take on this. In listening and editing our podcast from last week, uh, one of the things that I was listening to was the chapter where it's our it starts with the editor's note on uh, basically Raul and Gonzo just driving to that restaurant and then looking for the psychiatrist club, right? Right. Yeah. Okay, so our takeaway from that in our recording was essentially that it was like why is this why is this chapter in this book? It doesn't seem like it makes a ton of sense other than to add to the theme that like so much of this is really incoherent, right? But listening to the podcast, I was thinking about something and I wanted to get I wanted to hear what you thought about it, which was, isn't it more symbolic that the location that they're told is the center of the American dream has burnt down three years ago? Yeah. And not even the people who are trying to get you there realize that. Right. Like and I'm just listening to us talk about this on our last pod and I'm just like, well, duh. <laughs> like, come on, guys. Like how how do you miss how do you miss that,
1: you know? And you know what's you know what's even funnier about that too is that the whole point is that you're distracted from that what now in hindsight appears to be a pretty clear message trying to be sent by the fact that you're so messed up on drugs trying to interact with people who aren't messed up on drugs that it totally like like screens you from the idea it's trying to actually get. And it only lands in one sentence at the very end of the chapter. Just it burnt down years ago. Wasn't right. even there.
0: Right. Yeah. Super matter of fact, really just kind of Satan it as it is. I wanted to bring that up at the top, partly just because it's top of mind, but also because that is one thing in the movie that isn't included. So, With that, I think we can just jump right into to the movie itself. So, just some some stats on this movie for you guys. Like I said, the movie came out May twenty second, nineteen ninety eight. Its budget was eighteen million. Cody, do you have any guesses for what its box office was?
1: No idea. Let's say let's say fifty million.
0: Box Office was 13.7 million. Oh. This no. movie lost money and initially was not received well. So I I think we've had another movie like this. I don't remember exactly which one, but another one of these movies where like initial reception is very poor, but over the years it has become such a huge cult classic for people that like it's it's just grown and grown and grown. And has this kind of weird just place in like cult (laughs) classics now for movies. And that's best represented by its Rotten Tomatoes score. So the Rotten Tomatoes score for the critics is 49%. However, the audience score on this movie is a very solid 89%. Wow. Wow. The disparity there is pretty striking, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So Cody, I want to know, maybe, I mean, maybe we could just talk about this at the end. If you lean more towards the 49 or the 89 and, and why, but yeah, go ahead. I think, I think,
1: I think you and I get a ton of clarity on these movies based on books because we go from, and so the people know when we record these and they release, get released week to week, Paul and I are reading them every week in real time with the episodes and then we watch the movie the next week. So this is, everything is extremely fresh. The details from the book, it's not like we read a book in high school and then four years later, it gets turned into a movie and then we watch the movie and we go, and then we're comparing and contrasting that way. We are a lot of times with these books that we either you know, love in the terms of Narnia and Lord of the Rings, and then the movies that we also love. And then for movies or for books that we don't know particularly well, we are getting both fresh at the same time. And so with this one, I actually much, much more lean towards the 89 than I do the 49 uh, for a ton of reasons that we're going to go into over the next hour or so. But I did like the movie a lot as a interpretation of this uh, story, you know, You know, you dislike a story for all the reasons that you and I have expressed being uncomfortable with it. Some of the plot points, especially the Lucy stuff, just the kind of anxiety that comes with ingesting enough drugs to kill a lot of normal people, but not these guys. Um, But in terms of an interpretation of a book to a movie, you know, this one's got to be on the better half of ones that we've talked about.
0: Totally. I mean, you bring up a great point, which is just we're asking different questions here than what the person reviewing this movie is. Like probably looking to answer, which Mm -hmm. basically is like, we know the story already. So we're not grading the movie as like an independent thing. We're not saying like, oh, what's the character development in this movie? What's the plot in this movie? We're looking at it like, how well does it represent this book that we just read pretty much? And Mm -hmm. in in that sense, I'm leaning way more towards the 89% because I think it does a really good job. It's... Maybe I maybe would come to a different conclusion if it was like, okay, rate this movie without ever reading the book and like just isolating the two things completely and tell me, tell me like, did you like this movie or not? And part of it was like, God, it's a lot of like what I was talking about with the book where I turn this movie off and the first thing I want to do is just, I need to go fucking take a nap right now, dude. Yeah. And-
1: you know, this book is famously incoherent at a lot of times, which makes for a bad movie. Yeah. When it's the book and you are just like in Hunter S Thompson's head the entire time. And you're just with Raul Duke, just like trying to survive Vegas. It's it's because you have so much time with him. It makes so much more sense that you ramble and you stumble and you know, the days are pretty segmented and there's flashbacks and things like that as a pure movie movie making and movie storytelling works very differently, especially when you try to stay faithful to something as incoherent as that. So like you said, if you're just, if you hadn't even read the book and you're just trying to be like, is this a good movie? And you're, you know, someone who is, you know, a pretty, I don't don't want to say like traditional because all movie critics are different, but this movie is unlike a lot of other movies because it has to follow a very unconventional book.
0: Totally agree. Well said. All right. So let's jump into this and we can talk about you know actors casting and everything as we go along. So movie opens the way the book does with well actually I let me take that back because actually the way that the movie opens not not in the first like scene with duke and everything but the way the movie opens is footage of people protesting Vietnam and like soldiers in Vietnam. So it's an interesting way of the movie just throwing you into the time period that this is taking place and setting the stage in a way that's different than the book, where Raul, through the, just his writing, his internal monologue and newspapers that he's reading the whole time, is reminding you constantly of what else is going on within the American and global culture, really. In the movie, they're like, all right, we're just going to make sure right off the bat, you know exactly what's at stake for the U.S. at this point, And then smash cut you into <laughs> Raul and Gonzo in the red shark convertible hauling ass across the desert with Duke hallucinating these bats that we saw in the first chapter. So, Cody, how did you feel about like just like first impressions movie opens your first take? You know, the movie did something different than the the, than what the book did, where, you
1: know, it's so common in the book for Duke to pick up a magazine or a newspaper. And we get these little like stories of the outside world that, you know, are not from our like Vegas or highway bubble. And the movie made it clear that so much of what they're doing now is they just don't want to think about the outside world and how they're doing that is they are just like paralyzing their brain with drugs, Mm. which I thought was really, and that's, that's what I got out of the movie's interpretation of that because it's, you know, they don't have segments of him reading newspapers periodically throughout the movie. What they'll do is he'll kind of describe a theme about the current or the contemporary American consciousness. And then they'll just, as he's narrating smash cut in footage of protests, or hippies or Woodstock or Vietnam, something like that. Or it'll be on TV in the background of a scene. And that's how we kind of get those reminders. I thought it was a very neat trick that the movie did.
0: Yeah, I think so too. And you bring up the narrating um, from, from Duke throughout the whole movie, which we've talked about narrating through movies before. I thought it was pretty necessary when it came to this story, because so much of Fear and Loathing as a book is inner monologue. And you kind of have to have a little bit of that voice from a narrator on top of everything that's going on.
1: And I thought it did a way better job than the narration that was in like, say the great Gatsby that we talked about where it's like appears on the screen as like text font and very <laughs> yeah. strange choices for what is narration and what is dialogue and what is exposition. This movie I thought it did a much better job of, especially, you know, this is jumping way in the, In the end of the movie but um a lot of the the stuff that paul and i have talked about is some of our favorite pieces of writing from hunter s thompson the story about trying lse for the first time and like kind of the general experience in san francisco and then towards the end just like the transition from psychedelics to downers and what does that say about americans that that's their drug choice some of our favorite parts of it were included in really appropriate times in the story so i thought this movie you know you don't want to have like not that you don't want to have a narrator, but it's it's really easy to go awry if you have someone narrating the whole time. But I thought that they did a really good job with this one. Speaking of the narration, let I I do you mind if we just jump into talking about characters? Go for it. How did you like Johnny Depp's Raul Duke?
0: So I, I thought it was great. Uh I can't see a Johnny Depp movie especially. Is- Especially one like this, without thinking, Pirates of the Caribbean, Captain this is Jack Sparrow. A, this, this is a very okay. When did they? Okay, if this movie came out in nineteen ninety eight, was his next movie Black Pearl? Uh, hold on, let me do because, some quick yeah, internet research here.
1: It, it's a, it's is at least like next big movie, right? Because that movie came out in two thousand,
0: or was it two thousand two? Uh, Black Pearl came out in two thousand three.
1: Okay, three. So So there's a a five-year difference. Yeah. So the only reason I say that is because in those stories, he is playing a deeply intoxicated man. (laughs) And even, you know, the way he kind of walks and saunters around and his kind of stop-start manner of talking, I thought were very Jack Sparrow-y.
0: Okay. One of my notes for this movie is like, okay, if you're asking the question, what question is this movie seeking to answer? One, what, where, how, why is the American dream? Okay. Get that one out of the way. Yeah. The five dubs of the American dream. Right. And then two, what would captain Jack Sparrow do living in the mid 20th century? And this movie basically is just like, yeah, a hundred percent. If captain Jack Sparrow as a character lived in the United States in the 1960s and seventies, this is exactly what he would be doing. Like
1: the hands, the like jutting his knees out to the side as he walks. It's so, it's so like so it's 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 it legitimately put some dreads on him and dress him up in like a trike point hat. Yeah. And it's Jack Sparrow.
0: Well, he's got this like really bizarre voice and like matter of fact accent going on the whole time. Which do you know if that's what Hunter S. Thompson sounds like? So I haven't I didn't look into this. I would assume it's at least trying to go for something like that because I do know that in preparation for this role, Johnny Depp did spend a lot of time with Hunter S. Thompson before mm. this movie. And so I I would expect that this is partially based in reality, but it's it's this very kind of um abrupt kind of like staccato way of talking where it's like mumbled, but very, he talks like this and then he goes on and talks like this. And then it's almost like this weird rhythmic kind of thing. That's just, it's so, Hey, you a freak show. What's going on here?
1: Yeah. (laughs) I got to go into the room. Let me in. I need the key
0: and And this is the voice that he narrates with, too, so in other contrast to the weird Gatsby narration, where like you have Toby McGuire, and we'll get to him another through line into this movie, yes, but like Toby's like elegant in his like you know prose and the way he's actually narrating Gatsby in that movie. In this, there's just no change. And it sounds like Duke is as fucked up when he's narrating it as he is when he's going through the scenes. So I don't know. It's great. But let's get to uh, let's get to Benicio. What did you think of Benicio del Toro's Gonzo? I thought it was great. He he is
1: an intense actor who likes to play intense characters. And I thought that he brought an edge to Gonzo that really made a lot of sense.
0: I agree with you. I think it was a lot more menacing than I thought of Gonzo in the book. Appropriately menacing though. Yes. Like will you I'll use the sign to just say like like in the
1: book it's so ridiculous and because you have to create the images in your head and because they're describing so many different types of drugs, it gets a little hard to kind of, you know, humanize these guys and make them seem like real people. But when you see Gonzo doing Gonzo shit and it's Benicio Del Toro and he's a really, really talented actor and he's just a true psychopath throughout the story that when you see a real person behave like that towards other very real people, it, it, it gets a little spooky at times.
0: Oh, yeah, it's it's very it's very oh. terrifying. And I think that menacing aspect that he brings in just raises the stakes more for when they are absolutely loaded because we get this impression or we like you are led to believe in reading this story that there's really nothing these characters won't do especially gonzo like raul duke he he threatens to leave a couple times you know he he has an end point gonzo you're kind of led to believe like there isn't really a line that this guy won't cross. And when the character that Benicio del Toro plays is so scary, that makes the drug use even scarier.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's, it, it, there's a couple things at play. Like you, I more or less realized watching this, that like the, the Gonzo character, he really is just there for the kicks. Oh yeah. Like Hunter S. Thompson is like on paper there for work. Yeah. and because of that he is so much more internal you know he's using his writer brain he's always thinking he's always trying to like how can i pencil this down he's not very like extroverted at all and gonzo is the complete opposite he never thinks about what he's doing he only acts on instinct he's only reactionary mm-hmm. and so those two just kind of have to like be a ying and a yang if a ying and a yang ate an entire like <laughs> piece of paper that's blotter acid and has a hunting knife and is in a, in a pool or in the tub with all your clothes on, like yeah, asking you to electrify him or electrocute him.
0: Yeah. He's, he's incredible. But I mean, as as with the book, like these are mostly like the two characters that we follow through the whole thing. We can get to smaller parts as we kind of go through, but those are, those are the main guys. I thought they did a fantastic job at times. I did think like, this is just absurd. And some of like there's so much physical acting, especially from Johnny Depp in this movie. So like you said, Cody, the weird walking, the just crazy hand movements all over the place is so mm-hmm. bizarre, but it kind of fits into everything else that's going on here. So no real complaints. I think they both did a great job,
1: but from, they they also had yeah. the this was not like a part of the book. This was clearly like a scene that maybe even like the two of them were like, let's have some fun with this when they're at circus circus and they're on like a carousel bar and the bar stools inside of the circle. So it's basically like there's two circles moving opposite directions. The bar stools are moving one way. And then the larger carousel is moving the opposite direction. So you have two circles going clockwise and counterclockwise. And then they have to like get off that. That
0: happens. That's yeah. That's in the book. It is? Yes. I do not remember that portion. Dude, Raul's like he it's it's really quick. It's like one sentence, but he taught he like mentions it took me forever to just get Gonzo off this fucking moving bar.
1: Yeah, it takes like four minutes yeah. in the movie. <laughs> yeah. It's it's not a super long movie, but it is legitimately. I was like, they are on this thing for so
0: long. <laughs> I know. Oh my god. Um, all right. So we're in the car heading to Vegas and One of the things that I really liked is there's just creative ways that they make everything a little bit more loony, just in the way that this movie is shot. And the first thing I noticed is there are so many extreme close-ups on their faces Mm -hmm. that almost distort the way that their faces look. Not even like not even just like close-ups,
1: but with like maybe a fisheye lens, and it's all on a handheld camera, so there's like a shakiness. And like, if you want to zoom out, they actually just back up and you can kind of see, you can kind of feel that it's not motion controlled at all. I don't even know if that technology existed back then. It's all like close up handheld camera stuff.
0: Yeah. And so you just get a very intimate feeling of like a lack of kind of structure and security and everything that, that adds to the just drug oh. craze. Right. And then in this first scene, just another example The hallucinations that Johnny Depp is seeing, these bats, you see it through the reflection in his absurd sunglasses. And so it's just little things like that that I thought were really creative, where a lot of the hallucinations and things that are going on, they just do fun things to make it look wonky. But from there, we... And, and this is one of the things that I really liked about the movie, that you don't get as much in just the written word. They show you the drugs that they're bringing. Cody, they open this briefcase, well, this suitcase. What are you thinking when they open this thing? How organized it was. Right? <laughs> yes. It's got like like
1: cardboard felt grids. And each grid space is perfectly sized to match the drug. There's like a tiny one that's like three inches by two inches, and that's where the salt shaker of coke goes. Now, framing it on the right hand wall and the floor are two perfect for a fifth of liquor containers. And they kind of that kind of frames the right and the bottom of it. And then there's like, like equal sized ones for all the acid. And there's like the next above the bottom liquor is like little individual ones where they can put tiny dime bags of different pills. And there's kind of a larger space where there's just a big, like kind of court sandwich plastic bag full of weed. And there's also just like, it's, it's so organized. And he's like, ah, yes. Cause we know it's like the briefcase full of drugs. I thought it was going to be way more slapdash and just kind of uh what do we got here what's the first thing I see when I open it but it is a it is a very very considered and thoughtful
0: briefcase of prison time it is the only organized thing in this entire story the only thing that comes with any sort of structure organization is how the drugs are transported. It is. that's So I'm I'm so happy that that was your takeaway because that's the first thing I thought too was, one, it's, first of all, awesome to see the actual scale of like how much shit these guys are actually going to bring and consume with them to Vegas. But then, like you said, (laughs) there's so much thought that (laughs) went into this. It's so funny to me. From here, we pick up a hitchhiker. And it is the most albino looking Toby Maguire you have ever seen in your life. Dude, if I'm Toby,
1: I would like scream at the makeup person the first time I saw my hair. <laughs> the thinnest, wispiest, blonde, but like shoulder length blonde hair.
0: Yes. It's like why? So I'm assuming so basically the idea here is Toby Maguire is playing kind of a hippie drifter guy in. in, And I mean, that's that's in keeping with the book, too. But he just looks so naive and so like. Translucently blonde, like I think they dyed his eyebrows also. Yeah, it was crazy. And you're like, what is this guy doing
1: in the sun? And he's progressively more and more afraid like he is in the story. But yeah, seeing that, it's, it's just so clearly Tobey Maguire too. Like, what is going on? Right,
0: right. But I mean, I just love, like the movie, one of the things that it just does really well is it takes all of these little notes from Thompson in the book. And without talking about it, you just see them. And so one of these little things is like, Gonzo pouring beer over his like bare chest as they're driving out. And like the basically word for word thought into out loud spoken word of Duke being like, Oh God, we've got to like get the, get rid of this kid. Or like, what if he turns us over? Maybe we should kill him. Oh shit. Did I say that out loud? Like it's it those kinds of things. It's just so true to the book that, it felt super familiar and really easy for at least a book reader to follow what was going on.
1: Another thing I really liked. Um, and I think one of the reasons that it looks pretty good today is that when they get into you know the hotel for the first time and everyone turns into lizards, there's a real dedication to practical effects that I kind of thought added like a goofy charm to how insane everything was. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm glad. We should also say, we should also say that this is this might be the most colorful movie I have ever seen. Yeah. Like everything is very intense, very
0: colorful. Yeah, it's super That might also just be Vegas in the 70s too. Just overstimulating all the mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Um so let's talk about the lizard scene because basically when they show up and Johnny Depp is going crazy at the hotel check-in desk did you like the so you mentioned like the practical effects and like the goofiness of it i was surprised that we didn't see like barney walking around in that that hotel bar you know what i mean oh yeah yeah because basically for those of you who haven't seen the movie when cody says practical effects it's like Very clearly, just a bunch of dudes in like plasticky dinosaur costumes and lizard costumes just walking around. Like
1: if if someone was wearing the animatronics from Rainforest Cafe.
0: (laughs) That's exact. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. I just thought it added just like
1: a level of absurdity that I thought was appropriate. Mm -hmm. Just because they're also like, like eating each other and there's like blood on the floor. And it's just so bizarre that you can, that now, like, seeing that, you're like, oh, yeah, if someone's having a deep acid trip, this is the worst day of their life.
0: Well, and part of what I liked about it too is that the way that they show Duke or Gonzo tripping or any kind of hallucinations in the movie, it isn't consistent. It's not like, okay, every time Duke, does acid or is high on something. We're gonna have this same stylistic effect, this same choice in the way that we're shooting it or the effects that we're using. like no, it's different every time, which mm-hmm. makes a goofy scene like having a bunch of rainforest cafe animatronic lizards funny and like believable. So, yeah,
1: and it also like is it just kind of that's the floor of how
0: messed up things get.
1: You know what I mean? Yeah, like the go they get the goofy stuff out of the way,
0: and it only builds from there. We meet Lacerda pretty quick after this, right? Mm-hmm. I loved that Lacerda comes into their room, and <laughs> his like initial meeting with them. He like comes in. Johnny Depp is still tweaking the fuck out. And Lacerda is just like this straight laced guy who is very clearly set on doing his job and doing his job well. And there's this dude hiding behind the bar worried that Lacerda is like some kind of like army guy coming to kill him. Like I don't did this happen in the book. I don't remember this intro. No, but I think it's just
1: supposed to make you realize that, you know, they're supposed to be there for work. Yeah. Like this guy's a professional sports photographer. And he's like, dude, this is going to be sick. Like we're going to see like hundreds of motorcycles race all over the Sierra Nevada desert. Like, and it's going to be badass. Like, are you psyched? Like you're the reporter that's like going to be attached to me. Like we should be on the same page. And he is just, like, his brain is soup right now. And he's like, "Oh, I'll, I'll let you, like, go to bed,
0: I guess. Yeah, just a... Because we, we have a full day tomorrow. Slow walk out of the room. Yeah.
1: I love it. The first thing that Johnny Depp says to him, or, like, Raul Duke says to him, is, you're not Portuguese.
0: <laughs> he's like, yeah, man, all right. Uh, of course not. Like, anyway, about the Mint 400. But that gets us to the Mint 400. And this was... This was one of my favorite parts of the movie for two reasons. One, much like the book, Johnny Depp spends almost no time trying to cover this race. But the time that he does spend trying to cover it, remember, we're in like a dust storm because of all of the motorcycles and dune buggies taking off. Johnny Depp is walking around with a beer and he has it covered the entire time to try to keep the dust out. And then, on top of that, everybody is wearing bandanas over their face to keep the dust out of their mouths. And so Johnny Depp has one of these on, but there's a whole cut right over the mouth where his cigarette just goes through,
1: yeah, it's awesome. And he's always chomping on like the the glass filter for the cigarette that you can like reuse. And so this dude just looks like a moron. But, you know, to be honest, in the mid-400 crowd, he blends in. Oh, yeah. Because he's just a... You can tell that, like, okay, he's a he's a weird, like, reporter, journalist guy. He got sent out because this is a pretty goofy thing in Vegas. He kind of matches everyone there, which is really supposed to, I think, kind of supposed to contrast him at the DA convention. Right. I, be like, at least here, he's like, you know, he he's among... He's in the club.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when we show up to the mint 400 and this is similar to what the book says is there's a bunch of guys there that it's their job to cover like sporting events. And everybody knows that the mint 400 in Vegas is their chance to just like get fucking ripped. And so, so we walk into the like press tent Mm-hmm. for the Mint 400 and there's dudes that are just like passed out sleeping on the bar and like okay our guy Raul is in the right spot here
1: yes yes he's the right man for the job but you know not only with Tobey Maguire there's a lot of other really good little cameos throughout of relatively famous people Cameron Diaz is the blonde in the elevator that you know Gonzo's obsessed with it's she is Way too famous to be in this movie for nine seconds, which she is.
0: Yeah, I'm wondering. So, I mean, this is another uh, question I have about like where Cameron Diaz was in her career at this point. Because, I mean, yeah, she did The Mask in 1994. So, I mean, that was four years before this. I don't know. She's a rising star at this point for sure. Pretty wild, yeah. Yeah, anyway. But that elevator scene is so great because yeah that's
1: a that was the first time i was like oh this man's a real menace he's a real scary person
0: yeah Gon- <laughs> gonzo turning around in the elevator and he's like in the dude's mouth <laughs> he's so close to this guy but that's another thing that i find that the movie does kind of interestingly is much like the book what the book does a lot is it will fast forward like a day or two. Right. And then it'll take you back on a flashback. And Mm -hmm. the movie does the exact same thing where mint 400 ends. And then we just find ourselves back in the hotel room. Gonzo is talking about how he wants to castrate Lacerda for stealing his girl. And then we flash back to the elevator scene. So even in like a lot of the order of fast forward, rewind, the movie sticks really close with the order of events in the book.
1: Yeah. And they do a good job to like smash cut it. So obviously that we're doing different things that it comes across, across pretty clearly that we're doing flashbacks and stuff. And they did that well in the first uh, scene because, you know, they pick up the hitchhiker and they kind of describe like, what are we going to do in Vegas? And then they use that to do like, here they are at the Hollywood Country club, and then you know they're running around LA doing their stuff, and then bang, smash cut back into the car with the hitchhiker. Right, so they're able to see like when this happens, this is what kind of what's going on. Christina Ricci as Lucy, just another cameo that's in there. Uh, that's another one where like making having real people in the scene make it made it look a lot less fun. That was still our least enjoyed part of the book.
0: Yeah, yep. Gary Busey as the cop, the the highway <laughs> officer. Really good. Hilarious. Cal Penn was one of
1: the carnival barkers in Circus Circus. That was kind of a fun one. And I'm pretty sure when, you know, Duke has his flashback to the club in in San Francisco in the 1960s, and he's talking about kind of being in San Francisco during that wave, uh, they have the real Hunter S. Thompson. Oh, do they? Yeah, where it's like, I even saw myself, like, what was I doing there? And it's just old-ass Hunter S. Thompson at a table, just... <laughs>
0: <laughs> looking bad. Oh my God. <laughs> Cody, what did you think about Circus Circus? It looked not fun. Yeah. But look, it, it technically, like in
1: terms of production, exactly how it's described in the book, where it's just so gr- grotesque and so much and just, you know, everything that we've talked about it being, but, you know, you wouldn't catch me dead at Circus Circus.
0: No, I was feeling almost like ill watching it. Like, so claustrophobic because this place has an energy and a just kind of a, uh, it's just the type of environment that feels like it's always kind of closing in around you where there's always something going on. Bright colors everywhere above you is a fucking trapeze act going on. So like from all directions, light action, action, Music, sound, people yelling, stuff is going on all the time. And even as a viewer of this scene, I'm like, get me the fuck out of here immediately.
1: Yeah. Um. I also liked how the exact opposite of that was the DA convention. So much of that is like this muted blue hue where it almost feels like, you know, deceleration, like where you take an exit off the highway and you were going like, 80 miles an hour, and then now you're doing like 35, and you just kind of feel a little like way you feel like you're going way too slow, even though you're going the speed limit. That's kind of how it felt to just crash into the DA's convention, where it's so monotone, it's so quiet, it's so m- much more like shaded, darker. There's not a lot of light at all. There's only like this kind of like cop blue light that's just kind of all over the place. And it just feels so different from the rest of the movie.
0: In every way, except for the fact that Raul is like actively doing coke while sitting in the convention hall, like next to people. He's mm-hmm. like dropping his shit on the ground, trying to pick it up. <laughs> like, bro, you are playing it real fast and loose here. Oh, yeah. Um, But we skip oh, one of the like skips in this movie, things that we don't like talk about. I was in the book is we don't get the conversation with the police chief from Georgia in the bar where they're just yeah. like talking about what's going on in the in the drug culture, at least in L.A. And I was a little bit bummed about that. But- they made a reference to it at the beginning of the movie, though. Right when he
1: checks into the hotel. He's overhearing a guy on a payphone and he's talking about, oh, yeah, they cut her head off in the street and poked her full of holes and sucked her blood. There's right, a reference right. to it at the beginning where he's like, some guy in a Southern drawl and like a cowboy hat is like calling someone on a payphone, like panicky, telling the story.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You're right. You're right. I just would have loved to see the, cause like, there's a couple of times in this, in this story where like we get pretty up close and personal with cops. Mm-hmm. we get the highway patrol officer who in this movie it's really hilarious this interaction between Gary Busey and uh and Johnny Depp because like it's added i think in the movie that like this cop wants a little quid pro quo like mm-hmm. as long as i can get a kiss from you i'll like let you off um really creepy shit weird vibes going on there but funny, the other one, Cody, is <laughs> when Duke checks back into the Flamingo and is standing behind the cop and his wife. We both loved this moment in the book. How did you feel it went in the uh, in the movie?
1: Well, for one, we got the main guy from Law & Order who's the... Detective like, Stabler, bro. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's him who's the... Uh, guy checking in the cops and he and they let and they give him the line of like i've had to put up with like this is what he was thinking he's like i've had to put up with bullshit cop nonsense my entire life and now i'm gonna stick it to you and it was even better seeing it live because johnny Depp, like they do a funny bit where he's like i checked in at a very inopportune moment like walks into the flamingo looking like raul duke and all the cops like turn to look at him and it's like he looks down at his suitcase and it does like a little like Transparent, like kind of X-ray vision into the suitcase, and it's just all the drugs. It just fades out. And he's like, "Excuse me, excuse me."
0: Yeah, Christopher Maloney plays the flamboyant check-in guy at the Flamingo, and he's he Sven. He, Sven, he, he's so great. He's really <laughs> he's good. So great. Um, I I just would have loved to see one more interaction with Gonzo and Raul, both talking to that Georgia police chief, because I just thought that that moment in the book was so funny.
1: Yeah. To your point, as soon as I saw him talking about that on the phone, I was like, Oh, that means we're not going to get it at the end of this movie. It's too bad. Yeah. I liked, um, just kind of the end, the ending felt very, they they changed a couple of things we would talk about, but a lot of it was like, they're like, we can't pack all this, you know, hunter s thompson monologuing into actual plot so what we're going to do is kind of like cross section different things and they do, their their hotel suite just gets progressively and progressively shittier to the point where like that place is a freaking war zone
0: there's like four <laughs> inches of standing water yeah like across the whole floor of the suite by the end of this you can tell like
1: why they just want to get out of town because they have destroyed this place
0: yeah Speaking of destroyed things, the Cadillac by the end of this movie, it's so bad. It's like worse than I even imagined it in the book because the hood of this car is like halfway close. It's like sticking up like a racing spoiler on the back of it with like the canvas top just like ripped to shreds. And the last shot of the movie is Raul driving this thing, this mangled beast of a car with the American flag flying off the back of it. It is it's so great and just like a perfect example of all of just the destruction that happens throughout this story. But like you said, Cody, I mean, in the book, we get, you know, paragraphs at least of like talking about how things are just mangled, destroyed this, that, and the other. But the movie does a great job of just showing, not telling like, Hey, we don't need to tell you how fucked up the room is. Look at it.
1: Look at how we terrible this car is. We don't need to tell you how fucked up the car is because there's a scene of them in a parking lot cracking coconuts on the hood with <laughs> roofing hammers while ongoers look on and tell them to stop. <laughs>
0: like no and they're like you know it's uh,
1: coconuts are round and hoods are smooth so when you hit one it doesn't like stay in place it like shoots off and then the hammer just hits the hood of the car
0: (laughs) yeah an absolute mess okay one one thing one last thing that i want to touch on or want to make sure i touch on is the just adding to the gonzo terrifyingness is just that diner scene it's yeah it's really intense it really brought the movie to kind of like a crashing halt where all of a sudden you really come to understand like these guys are at the end of their luck. Right. And they are doing shit that no one should possibly do. So like this encounter with this diner waitress is really awful. And I mean, Benicio del Toro does it's weird to say this, but he does an incredible job. Oh yeah. Where it's like the whole time you're looking at him like, holy fuck, this guy is capable of doing anything in this situation.
1: Yeah. It was much sadder too. Oh, totally. I just because it, like, it, like I've been saying it the whole day, it's like a real person. So you at least get to like, you know, put the events to a face as opposed to just kind of like this person that is well described in the book, but it's not as real as when you're watching it with a movie. And it was much sadder at the end. It's very quiet. There's no music. Mm -hmm. It's just a very intense scene, very grounded.
0: Yeah. And I mean, the biggest, um, I think the biggest difference from the book here is uh, just the way that the movie ends, right? Because Mm -hmm. it just ends. It doesn't end with, uh, with Duke getting on a plane, going to Denver, it ends with him just driving off in the Cadillac and kind of leaves it, leaves it open. To to just you know whatever happened happened after that,
1: yeah. We were robbed of him turning over the car to some poor like valet guy, some at like the nineteen seventies Hertz dude. Yeah,
0: yeah. Some poor like teenager just like working there for some spare change, some beer money. Like, I'm what like, am dude. I supposed to do with <laughs> this car, man? And he's like, "Don't worry, I'm insured." Leaves. Yeah. Yeah. All right. What else? Are what else?
1: Also, yeah. Also, when he when you realize that he like drove through a fence onto an airport and like drove all the way up to the tarmac, the car like they are throwing him in Guantanamo Bay if he does that in 2022. Yeah. Um. More more pre 9 11 airport shenanigans that you know you see him do it and you're like no no shot.
0: All right. Um, scenes that we, that we haven't really talked about a whole lot. I mean, there's the, the maid scene, which is crazy. Not a whole lot to say there. It's pretty, pretty close to what happens in the book. The whole scene with Lucy actually felt a little less, it felt a little dulled down to me in the movie than it did in the book. Like I didn't have the same reaction watching the movie that I did the book, which thank goodness. Um, I felt like they took some of the edge that was in the book out of it for the movie. Um so that was better, I guess. But overall, I mean, just my kind of overall impression of this movie is like yeah, perfect interpretation of the book. They left some things out, but I think made up with it made up for it with just adding a visual representation that really gave you a great alternative way of looking at this story. Totally. I agree. Um I
1: thought, you know, as far as movie interpretations go, it did the trick and it overstimulates you and it's got some, you know, fun shenanigans mixing with some really real not fun plot points that are ju- that's just the story and you know all the way throughout Hunter S. Thompson you get to hear his thoughts on Nixon and you know the post hippie 1960 countercultural revolution and just how you know it didn't really mean anything
0: and totally. everyone kind
1: of has to deal with it and no one wants to talk about it
0: yeah totally agree cody
1: upper for the movie um upper for the movie for me was you know we, we we gave our confusion to the hunter s thompson bit of it but seeing him as a real person his interpretation i thought was actually pretty fun it is nice to actually like kind of see from the third person, like the physical mannerisms of what does it look like when someone's just that destroyed all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I, I thought just kind of like the idea of seeing all of it, especially because it is so trippy in the book, giving color to it, giving faces to names, things like that. I really enjoyed. Yeah.
0: My, my upper is just Benicio del Toro throughout the whole thing. He's he's a genius in this movie. Because I do think like he is a lot different than I imagine gonzo being in the book but in a way that i feel is a little bit more compelling actually mm. for instance one of the things that we didn't touch on uh much is the scene of him in the bathtub and him like tripping balls in the bathtub with grapefruit rinds and empty beer cans yelling at uh, yelling at duke it, it like every moment that gonzo that benicio del Toro's in this movie is just it's incredible it he's mm-hmm. he's so good throughout the whole thing
1: yeah and you know in the scene where he's in the elevator with the blonde uh news reporter you can tell that like you know benicio del Toro's like he's a good actor he's a really charming guy and she's like actually kind of talking to him yeah but he you know can't get out of his own way as a character and just blows everything up. And it's really cool to see someone like work against their own natural charisma to the betterment of a scene.
0: Right. Yeah. Uh, Honorable mention for upper is when Raul Duke pulls the bottle of ether out of his jacket before going into the circus circus. I laughed so hard. Like it is an enormous bottle. And the fact that this whole thing of ether he just has in the inside pocket of his jacket. Of his jacket, yeah. I just, I was laughing so, so hard. So that, those are my, my uppers. Uh, Downer, Cody. Uh, Downer is, you know, feeling
1: like your brain ran a marathon, but you sat for two hours. That was a really weird feeling. It's just so much stimulation. Yeah. So just the kind of... not Well, I was also hungover. Um, but the then emotional hangover of it as well.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with that. The The other thing that I would say, and this is less a downer for the movie and more more just about the story in general. The way that I see this story is like a... It's obvious to say this, but I was just thinking about this. Has any... Like, have any of your friends ever told you a really bad vacation story where they're like, dude, I went to, you know, wherever, Vegas, and all of this crazy shit happened. Like, we did this and this and this and this. And then, and you're kind of like, okay. And then what? And then they're like, well, then I went home. And you're like, okay. So you went to Vegas. Who gives a fuck? So that is my downer. And it is also my downer while acknowledging that that's kind of the fucking point. Mm -hmm. So I, it's kind of a cheating one because I get that it's like obvious, but it's just riding along in a story where it doesn't have a beginning, middle, and end. There's no real kind of like point to the whole thing. And it just feels at the end like, all right, so we're right back where we started. And I have to just kind of like enjoy the ride, I guess. Exactly. Because, you know, even in the book,
1: like they tell you the American dream is just doing a bunch of bullshit in Las Vegas and not getting caught. Like they tell you that in the first chapter and you just have to stick with that because you think, oh, well, that's, you know, they're going to find something else, right? You're like, no, dude. No, have you been paying attention? Every chapter is that we're just pushing our luck getting away with it, being confident assholes, hurting people and not getting caught. Right. And you're like, oh man, that's it.
0: Yeah. It's uh this is definitely a singularity in terms of books that we've read. Mm-hmm. There, it, it is the most unique kind of story that we have done so far. And with that, I think we can uh, announce what our next book is going to be. So, For all of you, uh, beloved listeners of the pod, on our next edition, we will be coming at you with our first recap pod of True Grit, which I'm super excited to read. I've never seen the movie either. I have no idea what this book is about. You're going to like it. We also have to
1: decide what movie we're going to do because there's two of them. There's a John Wayne one and there's there's a newer one as well.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm really, really excited. And this is a return to an author that we've read previously in Charles Portis. We read Dog of the South, loved that book, thought it was a ton of fun. Um, and so really excited to get into True Grit. And I uh, hope that all of you will enjoy it also. So stay tuned for that. We'll be coming at you with those recap pods shortly. Until then, this has been the Bibliotheques Podcast. We'll see you all soon.